Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, today we're going to follow up the uh, reports that we had in uh, Stick Together. We're going to take you to the... uh, socialists launched. The Victorian socialists have got uh, people uh, putting their hands up for the federal election. We've got, uh, um, not me, uh, the Victorian socialists have got uh, three people who are putting their hands up. Uh, Jerome, Jerome Small, who's going to be, is the socialist candidate for Broadmeadows. Sue Bolton, candidate for Wills and Kath Larkin, who's the candidate for Cooper, and I went to their launch, which was extremely impressive, I'll have to say. The speeches were well-paced uh, and uh, they were cooperatively uh, arranged in uh, ascending order, as it were, in terms of content. And uh, it was very well att- uh, attended, too. It was a packed house. It was at the Preston Town Hall. And... Uh, uh, Jerem, of course, is, uh, the socialist candidate for Broadmeadows. So the Campbell, Campbellfield Field Fire was, uh, of course, uh, high on the agenda, uh, because, uh, it appears that, uh, the, uh, the Ta- Tamil Refugee Council and, uh, the socialists were the people who were on the ground, really, uh, talking to and supporting the uh, locals. Uh, I mean, there was a public meeting on Saturday and, uh, of course, and the emergency services and the government and all the rest of it. But on a much more personal level, uh, it was the the um, Tamil Refugee Council and the uh, socialists who uh, put their hands out in support of the community. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm going to play you Jerem's speech because it was very impassioned because it puts a uh, political slant on uh, the events that happened out there, and uh, and it's it's a classic rousing speech. We're going to follow it up with a um, a, t- uh, a response, an interview with one of the Tamil workers uh, who was working at uh, the factory. Uh, Ray, uh, Rebecca um, met him at the big rally on Wednesday, so uh, we get to hear from him uh, about. Uh, his response to the uh, whole event. So here we go. I always planned to spend today uh, in the northern suburbs above the Ring Road. I didn't plan, obviously, to spend the day in the shadow 
literally and metaphorically and politically, of the catastrophic fire and explosion that we've uh, been hearing about and that's been put two workers in hospital and given another toxic blast to the northern suburbs. And uh, going around today, talking to people in Craigieburn, in Roxborough Park, on doorsteps in Coolaroo, um, I was reminded of a couple of things. One was actually the, something to do with the Jabaluki uranium mine struggle. This is a struggle against the most toxic shit known to humanity being dug in the middle of Australia's most famous national park. And I remember at that time, would have been the dying years of the Kennett government, I think, the government was proposing that the chairman of North Limited, the company developing that mine, the company which had 20 million tonnes of finely pulverised radioactive tailings from the Ranger mine slowly seeping into Kakadu, Australia's most famous national park, the proposal from the government was that that person, the chairman of that company, should be the chairperson of the Environment Protection Authority of Victoria. And yeah, the Liberals do that sort of damage, but the Labor government afterwards doesn't undo it, do they? I was also thinking of the, uh, the speaking of toxic fires, the toxic fire that enveloped the town of Morwell uh, back four or five years ago where the, uh, the Hazelwood open cut caught a light and burned for, I think, 45 days. And on the only figures that I could understand, compiled by local people going through the obituaries and going through the, you know, who's died and comparing the years, in three months an extra 54 people had died in that community, but actually the official sources weren't even counting. Every cent of wealth in this state, every cent of wealth that's counted in Collins Street depends on the labour of the people in that community and they're not even counting the people that die. I was reminded of that today as well. And it's an indictment not just of deregulation, self-regulation, self-attestation, light-touch regulation and all of that bullshit. Yes, it's an indictment of all of that. It's an indictment of a system that leads to that situation, that profits from that situation, a system that specialises in disposable people and chuck away communities. Use them up, chuck them out, who gives a damn whether they live or die? The whole thing is an indictment, not just of the neoliberalism that we've had, but of the capitalist system that's underlying it. I was reminded of that today, repeatedly, over and over. <clears throat> And it poses the question, of course, what are we going to do about it? And I think there's four things that we can do about it. Number one is turn the hell up. And you think that would be the really easiest thing to do, is just turn up and pay attention. That's what a big part of politics is. But even that is a test that one of the largest political forces in this state has already failed. Door knocking in Coolaroo this afternoon, Colleen came across a guy, wasn't that left wing, you know, whatever, okay, having a chat. And as she's turning to go, he says, oh, and by the way, where the hell are the Greens on this? He's been looking at their Twitter feed, looking at their social media, not one post. What, are they all so preoccupied with their keep cups that they don't give a damn about the mass poisoning of working class people in Melbourne's North? So, I don't spend much time on, on Twitter or on social media, so, you know, maybe there's some Green somewhere that's tweeted about it. But I do know the Victorian Socialists, yes, managed to do that within hours, managed to have Marcus, Farage and Gunga turning up to the meeting and Marcus basically crashing it and taking it over, managed to have Marcus talking good sense on the news last night. We turned up in that sense. We spent, you know, a chunk of us spent last night talking to people like Aaron, talking to others about what the hell's going on and what we can do about it. And of course, spending today out talking to people in Craigieburn, Roxburgh Park and Coolaroo about what the hell we're going to do about it. So yeah, we managed to turn the hell up. Tick one. 
Second thing that we did, of course, was call a rally. Um, because, like, and that's, this is not just some incidental thing. This is fundamental to our politics. You know, any conversation that I have on a doorstep that goes for more than a few minutes, I end up explaining, look, I don't believe that just getting one person elected to parliament or getting a decent vote is going to change all of that. We need a people's movement. We need a movement like what the unions used to be, where working class people could impose our will on society. That's what we need. And we want to use this campaign to take steps towards that. So, you know, the rally is a demonstration of the sort of politics that we have. It's not just a matter of electing people from on high who will rain good things down on the, you know, benighted working class. It's about us getting organised. Stop one today was a family out at Craigieburn. Talked to them about the rally. I said, yeah, good idea. Okay, uh, yeah, what time suits uh, all this sort of negotiation? How should we pitch it? Yeah, okay. We can publicise it in the, uh, the neighbourhood Facebook groups of, of Craigieburn and Roxborough Park and beyond. Stop number two was a retired supporter of uh, Victorian Socialists, lives in a retirement village in Roxborough Park. He's actually got three enormous toxic time bombs, according to the Melbourne Age, in a small industrial estate just over his back fence. So he's acutely aware. He's lived uh, and worked around chemicals for his whole working life. So when the toxic blast hit Kangan Tafe yesterday, where he's studying to do social work, you know, he had to call up his partner, oh my God, I need my asthma medication, I'm going to pass out. There were, there were people having to leave. Um, yeah, like it was chaos all over the northern suburbs if you were hit by that blast yesterday. As soon as I said the word, oh, look, you know, Andrew, we're thinking of calling a rally at you know, 5 p.m. Monday, even before I could say Monday, he was, I'm in. Then he picks up the phone, puts it on speakerphone, and calls a mate of his. You know, Jerry, uh, we need a couple of dozen people to protest outside uh, you know, Hume Global Learning Centre Monday, 5 p.m. Do you reckon we can do it? Slight pause. Jerry says, Yeah, I think we can do that. <laughs> what are we protesting about? <laughs> to which Andrew says, oh, the fire and all that. Oh, yeah, oh, we can do that, yeah. So, yeah, check two. And stop three, of course, was on the doorsteps of Coolaroo. It's, it's pretty mixed, I've got to say. You know, there's, like, yeah, you can talk to people with a persistent cough that just won't go away and, you know, was aggravated by yesterday's um, fire. You can talk to the woman whose kids came home from school, but they came home to Coolaroo, which is just in the middle of the toxic blast. You can talk to people who said, oh, look, this one actually wasn't so bad because, you know, it was sort of the wind was blowing to the, the southeast and not the southwest, so it would have been Dallas, they caught it more. All of a sudden, we're relying on Melbourne weather to keep us safe <laughs> rather than the, you know, light touch self regulation, the failed state, really, that is the regulation of these toxic substances in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, and, and you meet a lot of resignation. There was a guy there, uh, Graham, who you know, stopped chatting with, with him and his partner for you know, maybe 10 or 20, probably 10, yeah, 10, 10, 20 minutes. And you know, they were talking about, okay, there's the pile of asbestos just in the road over there on Kyabram Street. You see the illegal dumpers there. This place is a legitimate business, but we think it's dodgy. We've called the council. You, know, you get the whole story. And he must have said 20 times, oh, you can't change it. No, they'll never change. Oh, we tell them, but they won't listen, whatever. At the end of that discussion, because I was saying, look, all we've got is ourselves. We know that they're in the, you know, that's what they're in it for, that they're in it for the money. All we've got is ourselves. And at the end of it, I didn't think I was getting anywhere. At the end of it, he said, okay, well, thanks, Jerem. I'll see you at 5pm on Monday. I've got that three times on the doorsteps of Coolaroo today. So... So it might be... But whoever turns up, we're standing with two dozen really cranky retired people, and I'd be proud to stand with them, you know, outside Hume Council, because ours is a politics of hope. 
Ours is the politics of not just resignation and despair. Ours is the politics you know, that drove people like Hussain to campaign to get Hakeem back. Who would have thought that was possible when it was locked in a Thai dungeon with the Peter Duttons of three countries trying to keep him there and deport him? You know, um, the, the politics that drive you know, Hussain to persist against incredible odds in the NUW to win that great victory at a chemist warehouse. Ours is the politics of hope. And in dark times, we've got to remind ourselves of that. And we've got to, you know, yes, you know, we want to talk about the horrors of the system, but part of the point of the rally is that, you know, even if we can't stop the bastards, we can call them out, we can stand together, we can make a fuss, we can shame them, and that's how any bloody change has happened. And that's a message that's worth taking to the northern suburbs as well. Thirdly, thirdly and more, more briefly, of course, we have to build the political forces of socialism. The political forces of capitalism don't need any help in building, and we're pretty familiar with them. You know, anyone else got those glossy leaflets for Clive Palmer? Anyone else picked up a copy of the Herald Sun, or for that matter, The Age? Anyone else seen you know, the sort of stuff that comes out of the Labor Party's mouth? I think they gave a, commission, a, a, a submission to the Fair Work Commission about the, the wage rise recently, uh, the national wage case, and it said literally there should be a decent wage rise. And listening to the guy, like I think it was Chris Bowen, being interrogated on the radio, well, what's a decent rate, wage rise? 20 cents? 20 dollars? Oh, it should be decent. Da, 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 da. They won't tie themselves down. We know that politics, that's not the politics of hope. That's the politics of just dither around, you know, promise something and never deliver. That's the politics that has led to the cynicism that we find on the doorsteps of Coolaroo. There's plenty of that around and they're pretty well organised. If we want an alternative to that, we've got to get ourselves organised, and that's the fourth thing that we can do, is maybe people here have just turned out for an entertaining Saturday night, come and hear a few speeches or whatever. You think you're going to get away without your name on a contact list to be followed up? Well, you're not. You are surrounded. You will not get out that door without putting your name on a list, hopefully for the big door knock in the northern suburbs of Melbourne in Colwell uh, next Sunday. Next Saturday, thank you very much. Um, hopefully, come along on Monday and keep those couple of cranky, you know, couple of dozen cranky pensioners, you know, like company outside the council. Hopefully, come along even tomorrow to the Broadmeadows Festival and hand out a few hundred leaflets, maybe a few thousand leaflets, to people who have just suffered this toxic blast, saying, "Hey, how about it? Let's have a rally." But yeah, politi politics, when socialists do it, is a participation sport. And every single one of you is needed. Whether you can put something in a letterbox, whether you can knock on a door, whether you can donate money, you, that, you know, all we've got is ourselves. So if we want the politics of hope, we've got to work hard for it. The, and the point of that, well, I mean, the point of that we've heard all evening. The point of it is what Marcus said. The point of it is what Hussain said. The point of it is the resident action groups. Like, the point of it is all of us. The point of it is to build the politics of hope and remind ourselves that we've got a world to win. Robbie, we've got um, on the line now, Rebecca is uh, down there with Aaron Mavalgum uh, from Tamil Voice and Tamil Manifest and Refugee Radio and he wanted to talk about um, the workers that have been at the Broadmeadows fire. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. All yeah, right, let's, let's, let's cross to, to them now. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so this is Aaron from the, the Tamil Refugee Council and I have uh, Anujan uh, who was a worker at the Bradbury Industrial Wastages um, he he can only speak in Tamil, so I will 
uh, do the translation. Um, you know, if you want to ask any specific questions, uh, please uh, feel free to ask him, and uh, and I will be able to translate. Uh, but I'll get Anujan to say a few words uh, at the start. Great. அங்க வந்து ஒழுங்கான ஒரு பாதுகாப்பு இல்லாத காரணத்தால்தான் இந்த இதெல்லாம் இப்படியான தீ விபத்து வந்ததுக்கான காரணம் இது தொடர்ச்சியாக அந்த கம்பெனியில இருந்தது எந்த பாதுகாப்பு ஒழுங்கான முறையில வழங்கப்படையும் இல்ல தொழிலாளர்களுக்கும் அதோடு அந்த பேக்டரியில வந்து ஒழுங்கான பாதுகாப்பு இதுவளும் இல்ல பாதுகாப்புக்குரிய சேஃப்டி சம்பந்தமான இதுவளும் இல்ல ஐ வாஸ் கன்சர்ன்ஸ் அபவுட் safety uh, in that workplace with various people we also had um, underpayment claims uh, through our union uh, and in um, which we won uh, the 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 reason why we had this environmental disaster is because the employer never really cared about the the safety of the workers what what are the sort of calls for support that you're bringing to the change the rules rally today indiya arpaadathila neengal vandu ennathukaga vandirukkiriyal enna message neengal ellarkum solla virumbriyal indiya arpaadathila vandu tholilaaligalude paadhaapu madikapadavanum tholilaaligalude oodiyam olungana muraiyila valangapadanum mudhalaaligalaala tholilaaligalukku endha prachaneyum illama tholilaaligal avangalude urimiye olungana muraiyila pettukollavanum we are here to demand uh safer workplaces uh, for workers we're also here to demand fair pay for workers uh, there are so many employers out there uh, exploiting uh, migrant workers and and we want uh, a fair share of their profits mm yep and um in regards to the the follow up um fr- from the fire what are the next step that the workers are taking there the tivo vipatti nadandadukku piragu adutha katta veliyaga ningal enna seiyringal in the in the in the nerpu nadandha idirukku enna poradhariki naan anga naan mundiya vela senjan ஆனா என்னுடைய தொழிலாளிகள் சக தொழிலாளிகளுக்கு சொல்லுவது வந்து அந்த இடத்துல பாதுகாப்பு இல்லைன்னு சொன்னால் முன்கூட்டியே அவங்க அறிவிக்கணும் அறிவிச்சு தங்களுடைய பாதுகாப்பு தாங்களாகவும் இருக்கணும் அந்த தொழிலாளர்களுக்கு வேலை வாய்ப்பு ஒன்றும் இல்ல அவங்க என்ன செய்யற எங்க போறன்னு தெரியல நீங்க அவங்களுக்குரிய வேலை வாய்ப்பை எப்படியாவது ஒழுங்குபடுத்தி கொடுக்கணும் அது மைக்ரன் பேக்கர்ஸும் யூனியன் சேர்ந்துதான் ஹெல்ப் பண்ணி எப்படியாவது இத ஒரு முடிவெடுத்து கொடுக்கணும் uh the company has uh, advised us that they will pay us till thursday but we don't know what's going to happen uh after that um it's it's uncertain future we're hoping migrant workers center and the uh, and the and the australian workers union will uh, support us uh, with with the next step mm. hey aaron how you going is robbie here hey hey robbie how are you yeah i'm good bros <laughs> It was pretty um nasty fire out there the other day when I, you know, I woke up Friday morning I just seen this big plume of smoke going down sort of the western corridor there. You know what sort of damage is that done is that they done any testing on on the damage that that chemical fire's done cuz I remember the last one it, it left a trail of damage right over the other side of the bay. So if that's happened here as well and people have been um have been contaminated by this stuff 
and that's going to surface later with these stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but um, I'm thinking change the rules. That's what Blackfellas have been saying in this country since day dot. You know, we haven't got jobs in our own country. All the wealth is being taken off our country. There's no consent here, no treaties, no jurisdiction. What rules are you going to change? What laws are you going to change? You know, I believe that the unions only have to step up once for Aboriginal people and will fundamentally change the whole system here. We've got just cause. It's our land, our law. People need to acknowledge that. Anyway... Um, that's, that's right, Robbie. I, uh, I do agree that uh, it should be uh, more than just changing the rules. It's not just about changing the government. It's about changing the, the system. We know, you know, as, as a refugee uh, and, and a supporter of refugees, I know the damage the Labour Party has done to uh, uh, the, the refugees in this country. Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the same mob is, uh, you, know, co- you know, calling for a change of government using the union movement here, using the, uh, the workers' power here, uh, I'm not too hopeful that just by changing the government we're really going to see uh, a real change. Uh, we need to uh, still escalate our uh, campaigns in a way that uh, we, uh, we see a change in the system. Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia, fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3cr.org.au. Yes, we're now moving on to uh, West Papua. Now, Rebecca has been speaking to uh, uh, one of the West Papuans. Uh, you know, of course, that on uh, 3CR we do have a West Papuan program and uh, it's uh, been telling people about the floods that have been affecting the West Papuans. But uh, Rebecca was able to get a bit of an update uh through a conversation with one of the uh, our uh, West Papuan friends. I'm here with Erwin uh, Bleskadi uh, from The Voice of West Papua. And, uh, yeah, Erwin, can you tell us, give us an update about what's happening in West Papua at the moment? Yes. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of happening for the last, since it's December last year and to, until now and still happening and, in Induga, there's uh, there's military with uh, and all the villages. The people in the living in the village they already ran away, and the village was empty. No one, no one at the moment living in there. And only the military, Indonesian military, being oppressing and try to uh, push the road. That's what. Um, the order from Jokowi, the president, current president from Indonesia right now, 
And so that road project yeah. is um, to connect the coast to the highlands, right? Yes, yes. It's yeah. a big development project. It's a big development project, but the project is being handled by military, mm. not for, from civilian, but all the military. Even the war car is from military and the security all from military. And they are keep pushing that and, you know, that's... Um, the indigenous people, especially in Duga, they don't. They said that it's not benefit from the from from the. Yeah, for them, the road, yeah. the road is nothing to, and yeah. In and fact, it's probably going to bring more trans migration. Yes, it so, is. It is. Yeah, it's the it's the the main project for them to bring in more trans migration to come to in Duga and yeah and also flood. Coming. Yeah, the flood that happened the, about the a flood. month ago. Yeah, yeah. about a month ago. In Sentani, right? In Sentani. Yeah. And this is the people, they still, uh, like, they're still suffering to uh, to coming back, to build their life back. But it's really hard for them to, uh, because there's no support from particular, that's only, only the local government. Yeah. But there is no, from, uh, from, yeah, international aid inter- inter- can't, uh, can't come in. And, come in because yeah. they, the Jok- the president, the Jokowi president, didn't didn't announcement. This is the this is the national state of emergency. State, state of emergency, mm. and there is no nothing from the Indonesian government, particular the president Jokowi. Yeah. So uh, why why didn't he declare that? Do you think he. Right now, he just want to focus on the uh, the president election. Okay, uh, and so, that's coming up next week. Yeah, yeah. that's coming up uh, next week, Monday next week, and this is gonna be and this is gonna be uh, what Jokowi focused on. And he he did the one thing he didn't know that um, for the last election on four years ago before he became the president, he was. Mm, try to, and the majority of the voice, the voter, is coming from West Papua. The mm. people are just like one hundred percent put for the him, yeah. voting for him. And do you think they they had some hope that, like, uh, if he became president, that things might become like be better for West Papua? Well, it's nothing. It's like yeah. like a last. For years he do he doesn't do anything. He didn't do anything. He just focused on the like road transmigration and yeah. bringing more transmigration to West Papua. Mm. That's the only project. And before he became the president, last four years ago, before he be, he was went to West Papua for a few times, like eight times. Yeah, he kept around. visiting. Yeah. yeah, he's the one. He's the only president who came to West Papua for a lot. Mm, more than like more than five yeah, <laughs> times, yeah, yeah. and he was for promise to his Papua for the people there. He be, when he become the president, he want to uh, uh, solve the human rights issues, special particular in Paniai Pani bloodshed. Yes, and the, also, yeah, Paniai massacre. Yeah. Paniai massacre. That. Yes. That's mm. uh, what happened. Like a few. Yes. A lot of the young students in the primary yeah, and were killed. Uh, yeah. secondary was killed uh, mm. in the in the spot. 
Yes. He, he promised that and he didn't, until now, he didn't do anything. Yeah. So he just, now, right now, he went to, like, they went to, he went to, he didn't focus on the what's going on in, in Duga and he didn't focus on the Sintani flood in Sintani. Yeah. He just focused on the election. Yeah, and, this, and uh, I know uh, calling for a boycott of yes, the election. Yes, yeah. this is this is what like yeah, ULMWP now is calling for the boycott. Even the uh, TPN OPM, Egyanus Kogoya, he's the right now in Induga. He's the commandant on the Induga. Yes, he also makes statement. Yeah, very clear statement that he won all the West Papua. We boycott for the. This election, mm. what's happening is election is gonna be, yeah. The people will say okay. Why well, it's really hard because yeah. Well, what if oh. if that means that Prabowo mm. the uh, is going to that, get into power? <laughs> wow, I think that would be. What do you think will happen if he comes well, into power? Yes, it is gonna be happening. Is it? Is it when uh, Prabowo become president? Oh, it's like uh, the regime of military regime is come back. Yeah. And we, I will remember that uh, the the late president of the Indonesia is a Suharto. Yeah. Suharto, he's the one who, when he was 15 years become the president, 15 years become the president in Indonesia, he got power from Indonesia because he has is a military ex military and he got a, he got a lot of support from military. Yeah. He's he built up the rising military in yeah, Indonesia yeah. really good. Mm. And now Prabowo. Now Prabowo is trying to build up the situation like him. Yeah. And Prabowo is uh, also Prabowo is uh, a son in law. So Harto is a uh, his father-in-law. Oh my gosh! Okay. This is gonna be yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and people, people, this when happening is that when he become the president, so the military regime power, military yeah. regime, is come back. Yeah. And is like a people you can't talk about democracy. Mm -hmm. You can talk about the against the government. Yeah. When you against the government, yeah, that's it. You're gone. Yeah. And, and what? Because Australia is also supporting the uh, Indonesian security forces by training and, yeah. and training their police at the Joint Centre for Law Enforcement and Cooperation um, mm. in Indonesia. Like, what what do you what do you want Australia to do? Well, if like a Prabowo become the president, let's let's put it like this: let's uh, Australia have to cancel all this. Uh, bilateral work with them into Indonesia, stop the old military and also stop uh, the, you know, like logging stuff and everything, mm. economy and everything. Australia have to boycott that because, mm. so because Prabowo, he has a, he's an international criminal. Yeah. He was got record in, in, in Estimo. A lot, lot of the missing people in Estimo and a lot of the uh the lot of the people killing since the the when in Estimo before the freedom before become the freedom free country 
there's a probo or is the one is a is a, they call like a, you know the copasus mm yes copasus is a special force of the yeah. military yeah. and probo is the commandant commandant of the copasus during the during, what was happening in east timor yeah. in the 90s yeah. yes he was an, during what was happening in 19 that's uh yeah wow uh, well I I hope the boycott goes well but I also hope that Prabowo doesn't win. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is it, but it's like you know like it's like a, you're going to you release from the mouth of the lion. Yeah. You come to crocodile mouth. Yeah, right. That's <laughs> yeah, there is no good uh, there is no good way you know, forward. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, thanks so much for the update, Erwin. And, uh, yeah, we'll try and speak to you again after the election and, and figure out, yeah, we'll, uh, hear what, what West Papuans are doing. Um, and, yeah, Papua Merdeka. Thank you, Papua Merdeka. March 16, the Sentani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains, also poor waste management, polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papuan people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chafforg project flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka. Gets up one talks. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're now going to go to the big end of town. And yesterday I went to an event from uh, put together by Cedar and sponsored by Siemens at the major sponsor for this event. Uh, Siemens is a German company and it is focusing on the areas of electrification, automation and digitalisation. And uh, the reason for why I wanted to play this is it's a keynote speech from the event yesterday by Jeff Connolly and it is all around uh, smart cities and, uh, yeah, smart cities and what was the other thing? Smart cities and infrastructure. That's it. They're putting it all together. 
and uh, many people who working class people are very concerned about the future world that uh, we're moving towards, uh, especially in relation to uh, work uh, and what work is going to be like, but also uh, what cities are going to be like. So I thought I'd play this so you get an idea of what the big end of town thinks is our future. So uh, here we go. That's a depiction of the four industrial revolutions that have been described. The fourth one being the cyber-physical systems age that we are approaching. The the fourth industrial revolution is born out of the need to be competitive and the need to be productive. But it's enabled by technologies of digitalisation and the ability to handle data, sorry, collect data, um, interpret it and do something with it. Put very simply, that's that's the um, genesis of what Industry 4.0 is all about. We're describing an industrial revolution prospectively. And typically, after an industrial revolution has happened, people sit back and say, well, if only we'd known, we could have got prepared and we could have actually had much much less social consequence of that, of that industrial revolution in terms of jobs. So this time, it's very clear... Uh, that there's going to be a massive transition happening in the way we get things done, uh, but also what it means for the, for the future of work. Because of the explosion of data and remembering Industry 4.0 was something conceived from a manufacturing environment, we had uh, up until around the mid-2000s uh, lots of product data management activity in the manufacturing side. What's happened uh, in a similar period of time is that Uh, automation systems were put into manufacturing processes. Product side rapid prototyping through the design in the virtual world means on on systems before you put a physical product in place. And in the factories you were able to actually model what what was going to be produced before you even turned uh, the first sod for the factory. And of course what's happened post that is the ability through the operation, through the life of whatever the product is or the production plant you're able to continue to optimise, so closing that loop. All, all enabled by data. Examples of Firewire sur- uh, surfboards is a Western Australian company owned by Kelly Slater, who knows a thing or two about surfing, apparently. He bought a company there, but it's about uh, a customised mass production. So can you produce an individual surfboard, one-off, at the same cost as you would do if you're making 500 or 600 or 700 of the same design? Using the digital tools in the design, that changes business models and the way people then will go and order a surfboard and how it pops out, gets produced and gets delivered. Second example there is Callaway Golf. A lot of Industry 4.0 is talking about reducing cycle times. How long does it take me from the time I have an idea that I want to modify a product to getting it to the market? And your ability to actually do the design and simulate all the consequences of the design happening at the front end through all of those software tools that, that got developed product cycle in terms of months rather than years. Um, In the early stages, uh, Formula One racing, uh, when Red Bull was dominating, their dominance actually was to do with the the way that they could actually modify what was happening between races and then actually be faster than the competitors to make adjustments. The third one example there is actually Drillup. And from a manufacturing point of view, is it possible to continuously reduce the lot sizes so that you can have a small batch at the same cost as a large batch. Gives you much more flexibility in your manufacturing processes and removes a lot of manual steps if you can automate it properly. 
show you a bit of a timeline here. Now, I mentioned that there was the early stages, 2000 product data management. That's the left-hand side of that graph. You see we, we continue to be able to design the product on the left. And on the right-hand side, there's an, a continuing automation in manufacturing. The inflection point there is something called product lifecycle management software, where there's all of the ability to do the engineering on a suite of software tools that enables you, A, to model it, but B, to simulate it before you go and produce it. So from the imperative of productivity, of course, you're reducing the room for error. So it's a quality-driven, uh, non-conformance cost elimination type of philosophy in there, accelerated through the ability to shift data around, integrating the automation in the production and the design of the product, and you can evolve that whole process continuously. In a publication re recently from Andrew Detmar, who's the president of the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union, and he was sort of lamenting the general productivity of manufacturing. Now, he said that, I guess, on safe grounds, because he actually knows in terms of factor productivity, the labour productivity in Australia hasn't been the laggard in terms of overall productivity. It has to do with what we've invested in the capital side, what we've done in technologies uh, to facilitate uh, further, further productivity overall. Uh, what happened in Australia under Industry 4.0, we said, we'll mirror what the, the German approach. And, and here I'd like to say the, the Industry 4.0 approach and what's different about it is because it's seen, we're seeing something prospectively, but we're seeing it holistically. What we're saying there is um, this is not just a technology play. The technologies that will come in and out of what we describe as cyber-physical systems they will go to uh, autonomous systems, there'll be machine learning. All of those technologies will develop under one particular uh, part of what we research in the products. But the framework that enables all of that, that has to, when I mentioned a moment ago, getting ready for the future, has to do, do, we ha has to do with do we have the standards? Because unless we actually have, this, have the data exchanges happening seamlessly across the globe, then, of course, uh, th this digitalisation effect can't happen. So that's the first one in Australia, Standards Australia, is running the workstream uh, standards for Industry 4.0. The uh, IMCRC is actually looking for new technologies to be playing in that field. The third one is a little understated, and I've mentioned it several times uh, the, um, as being understated, uh, is, is, is the network security, cyber security that if this world of digitalization is going to flourish, then we need to have trust in the integrity of the data moving in and out, and it can't be uh, manipulated by those people who would want to manipulate it. If you extend that just briefly f into infrastructure, if you could imagine that most of the power electronics on networks, for example, were laid out at a time where people really weren't considering that they might be hacked, uh, what happens if, in a, in a synchronised way, all the devices on the network are brought down at the same time cross modes. Power, water, rail, airport, boom. So you can see that the, the network security topic becomes something of an economic uh, imperative because you can actually bring down an economy of a country if that's not looked after. And all of this digitalisation and these extra devices out there on the field mean that we have an exponential risk that we have to be able to manage. The fourth pillar of what's been implemented in Australia is co-led by Swinburne University, who were originally part of the Prime Minister's Task Force and the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union. There's something a little unique uh, in the way the Germans go about organising the future. They'll take a big topic and cut it down in its little parts, but it's a collective. It's not a single industry company that's saying, 
uh, we own Industry 4.0. Siemens, of course, contributes many technologies that are enabling it, but it's not about Siemens technologies at all. It's about the societal framework, and this particular framework that I'm showing you here is the same one we're trying to adopt for the implement or getting ready for Industry 4.0 in Australia. That work stream, the final one, work, education and training, uh, and test labs is the mechanism by which we provide skills in enough quantity uh, to change um, existing workforces but ready future workforces for the jobs they're going to need to be doing in that environment. And we have by far not enough people in quantity to do the transition and to, to do the... It's not just about a technology, it, but the overall program, Industry 4.0, the way it's being conceived by the Germans and the way we're implementing in Australia, is about an holistic framework. Of all those things, you've got to get right so you don't displace workers and leave them behind. And make sure that we go along with the rest of the world and make sure we don't get left behind because we can't compete. You're on Solidarity Breakfast, and we're listening to Jeff Connolly. He was uh, speaking at an event yesterday, uh, a CEDA event, and uh, he's from Siemens, and uh, they were the uh, uh, sponsors of the event. So what he's doing is uh, outlining what uh, they believe, Siemens believes, or uh, and people who are uh, interested, you know, in the process of uh, making Australia. Uh, part of the industry for sort of technological revolution, right? So that's why I'm playing it, so that you can get a, a grasp of the uh, ideas that are behind it. And int- and it goes into, it, ca- uh, listen carefully, because later on he actually enters into China Merville sort of, uh, China Merville sort of world where you have... Uh, uh, people, uh, places, uh, creating a digital twin of themselves in order to uh, maintain the infrastructure of uh, the city. It's it's quite fascinating, actually. Uh, if not, uh, uh, th- this is what it's all about. Let's get to infrastructure and what, what then could be the overlay for infrastructure. Well, uh, for the sake of convenience, we put one, two, three, four in the stages of infrastructure there. Any of you say utopia is somewhere up at four, where you say you have fully integrated intelligent infrastructure, uh, integrated real-time optimization and incident management across all infrastructure domains, not just energy, not just water, not within a building, all domains, transport included. So how do you, how do you manage a city or, or your infrastructure in a way that you can incident respond? If anybody is working on uh, uh, the new Sydney airport, you'll know that the board there is actually talking about how do we have exactly that um, environment in a new build. Much more difficult when you're talking about an entire city. How do you transition it from where it is now to where it needs to be in the future? But that's ultimately where this is going and it will be enabled by the similar characteristics I was just talking about in digitalisation inside the factory walls. If you ask me where are we at the moment... I would say within the silos of the modes of infrastructure, we're making some progress in automation. But I wouldn't say that we're probably at three. I would say we're somewhere between two and three on, on that journey because they're very much seen as discrete, still seen as discrete silos. I was asked to put a little example there. This is actually Milan, and it, it's not at all an example of the fourth stage. It's actually just an example where it's cross-modal, a water organisation. This is a Milan case where it's, it's um, trying to optimise real-time according to um, demand 
the water flows, the pumps, the energy, the energy to have an holistic, real-time response to what's going on actually on the network with no lag. Uh, we would say that's quite advanced, but again, um, only within a limited silo. Manufacturing inside of four walls, you could digitalise. We find it much harder in a, in a construction environment out in the city. How do you digitalise the city? But the philosophies that we have inside the manufacturing environment can still be applied. That graph is actually a German graph, so anybody wants to defend the construction industry in Australia, that's quite okay, because this is really talking about the German experience. It talks about uh, manufacturing productivity, how uh, in Germany the manufacturing productivity rose and rose and rose and rose, that the same number of workers were producing many-fold more output in terms of manufacturing product. You can see what's happening there is the application of automation to enable the same number of employees to be working by just simply producing more. Over the same period of time, the construction industry hasn't enjoyed the same sorts of productivity games in, in Germany, in this case. The realities in the construction industry, uh, for those that are more deeply involved in all elements of it than we are as technology suppliers, but typically... 30% of the projects don't meet their original program times or budgets. 92% of planners say that they never have all the information before they really commence. EPC typically means engineer, procure and construct, not somehow procuring before you've done the engineering, but happens, I would say, relatively frequently. 37% of materials used in construction is wasted. It's this accuracy of, of bill of materials, for example... And 10% of projects typically occur for adjustments done after you've thought what it is you'd like to build and what during the construction you think, oh, that's what I need to build. So variation orders. On the right-hand side, a slightly different theme, but we really uh, need to understand, say, buildings, for example, generate 38% of CO2. It's not only about cars. So how do, you, how do you, in the build of and the design of a building, make sure that you're future-proofing for those sort of society requirements that are coming through and need to come through in terms of carbon management? We were in uh, Zurich last week at our building technologies group and the, the, one of the fellows put that diagram up there and he said, Jeff, you know what, you talk about digital ships for Navy. How do we create a digital twin? How do we manage the ship right through its life cycle, making sure that we optimise for the nation the whole spend? And he said, a building's a ship. I said, OK, it doesn't move too much, but hopefully. But if you look at the activities that are going on inside a building, you can get yourself there fairly easily. If you look at the build part, is 20% of the cost, the life cycle cost of that building. How you operate, what's happening during the operational period is 80% of the cost. And if you building into efficiencies, all those elements that are uh, described in the, in the circle there, if you're already building into the build portion the anticipation of needing to optimise the 80% of the costs, then you'll start to move the dial in terms of where we need to be going in infrastructure. How is it that I get through building information systems that my building is performing the way I expected it to perform when I designed it? How do you get enough data back to check your original thoughts when that building was uh, engineered. So I've mentioned just CO2, but of course we talk about quality of life in this whole discussion, you know, uh, building better places, better cities for us to live in. That's the function of a city, is actually to support the, the people that are living and working through that city. 
So there are all those elements that need to be designed into whatever it is you're doing in the infrastructure. There are some metrics there, I won't dwell on them, that describing the sorts of gains that can be had uh, by, by applying technologies. Um, what is it that makes it... What makes the trains run late? Typically, the trains run late because the doors don't open and people can't get on and off, believe it or not. That's statistically the main reason. It's not about the technology sitting under the train, the propulsion system. It's those issues. So how can you predict what's going to happen? How do you know that that particular door, that particular mechanical part is going to fail next week on the basis of a big enough data pool and certain characteristics that you're reading? There's a vibration. Uh, there's a shutter when the door opens and you can do the predicted maintenance remotely. Uh, and take it off before it slows down the system. Uh, traffic management, there's some ITS people in the room who have lots of experience of that. Uh, train automation, driverless trains, all those sorts of topics will come. The, the example we have on, on the right-hand side is um, uh, business models changing. We don't sell a train anymore, we sell availability of a train. The commodity is actually not the main topic. And, and that's the sort of dialogue we need to be um, entering into. Victoria, as you would know, has, has recently issued a digital asset strategy um, focusing on the sorts of challenges that we've got in the state moving forward. Um, moving up to 8 million people in Melbourne. Uh, 10 million trips a day, an increase of 80% up till 2050, 40% uh, electricity will come from renewals. Adds complexity into how you manage that system, how you're going to holistically manage what's going on there. Our own, our own target, zero, zero net emissions by 2050, means all those building consumption technologies in terms of uh, electricity have to be modified. 1.6 million new homes... And ideally, 20 minutes commute. I'm quite happy about that if it occurs. So there's some examples here of other places in the world. Uh, the Chinese, uh, as you might know, have many mega cities, and uh, they can. At least the Chinese are able to organise in a way um, because they have a central government that plans these things systematically and can implement them. And that the terminology is emerging. Well, we used to talk about the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things was everything. Many of my competitors have the Internet, but they have no things. We would say we do both because we know the domains that we're, we're trying to automate or we're, we're trying to uh, participate in. The terminology is shifting. The Internet's actually a given now. That's, that's actually the pipe that carries the data. We're now talking about the artificial intelligence of things. Again, that links back into that fourth stage of infrastructure that I was just mentioning to you, uh, number four, saying how do you get cross-modal real-time adjustment? And it's not relying on human intervention, it's happening in the background. And, and that, that sort of work, I, I know the Chinese are quite advanced in that, Helsinki and their 3D, uh, 3D project are actually undertaking to produce a digital twin of the city. So from all the domains sucking up into a platform, an IoT secure platform, uh, the ability to interrogate data in a consistent way, write apps on it depending which part of the system they're trying to, to modify and, and improve. So I'll close off now by saying there's a consequence in all of this that's actually mirrored in Industry 4.0. This is the World Economic Forum. 
came out last year and said by 2022, artificial intelligence robots could uh, displace 75 million jobs worldwide. Sounds like the bad news. The good news is there will be 133 million new jobs created. So it's not doom and gloom. However, there's a heck of a lot of work to be done to do the transition. In Australia, um, the dialogue, and certainly in Industry 4.0, and I think it's in Smart Infrastructure just the same, there's a competing a, a competition for all of those sorts of new resources. And uh, our educational institutions are simply not capable or uh, armed with enough capability to produce the quantity of new jobs that we need. If you think about all the defence projects, the second wave of resource, boom, the infrastructure topics we're talking about here, then you'll get to, if you stop to aggregate it, where are all these, where are all these skills going to come from? And uh, most of the uh, members of the Australian industry group are saying, I can't get the skills. There's people available, but not with the skills. So a lot of the work that needs to be done at the moment, despite the fact that the universities are producing more graduates than ever, how do we get then micro-credentialing back into the curriculum of a broader base of educational institutions to, to uh, lift up this gap that we can see coming? So that, in summary, was the journey, Industry 4.0 and Smart Infrastructure. Thank you. So there we go. That's what the big end of town thinks it's doing. Uh, when you listen to the policies, you, you will understand what, what underwear they're wearing. <laughs> Uh, so now let's move on to uh, This is the Week That Was. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. A weak Solidarity Bricky team listener when the Fossils Minister, who doesn't believe in climate change, the Minister's name is Price. Perfect, given that's what the planet's paying. And this week she was being urged by the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Fossils to back the Fossils by approving the Adani the Planet Beautiful Coal Mine. And this week, she was being urged by the caring business class party lots in the cities not to approve the Adani, the planet, beautiful coal mine. And, and we know coal is beautiful because big supremo scuttled their Morlash son, waved it around in Parliament and said it was beautiful. Not approve until after the election. But of course, we knew she would make a decision based on science and concern for the environment. Difficult choice, Melissa. It is, it is very difficult. I am concerned for the environment up north where there are so many marginal seats and I am concerned for the environment in the big cities where there are so many marginal seats. But finally, Melissa took the scientific caring for the environment advice of the hayseed and sheepshit lots, knowing Adani the planet would do no harm through the mega, mega litres of groundwater it would extract. And knowing how water bills are so crippling for most households, it is only reasonable that a corporation doing so much for the country and the environment should get its mega, mega litres for free. Uh, but the CSIRO says it has concerns about the impact on groundwater and the arterial basin. Look, Adani the Planet assures us it can address those problems, quite possibly even before the mine closes, ends its life, whenever it ends its life. And the CSIRO science must be questioned, because I have received a quite different scientific environmental assessment from Barnacle. Uh, that's Barnacle of the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party. No less an authority. Sadly, poor Adani, the, uh, the, uh, the planet, still requires a few more permits and we can only hope. Uh, 
As we recognise that huge international corporate behemoths making huge international profits from the fossils we can't afford not to dig up, indeed it's the true blue Aussie thing to do, we also learn that the untrue blue Aussie thing to do is protest against animal cruelty, anti-social environmental terrorists who should be locked up with the animals they're trying to protect. A righteously angry Lord Rupert of Wapping, in his Wapping sin, spoke for all of us. Taxpayers will foot the hefty bill... Sorry, sorry. Police sources said the rally would have cost tens of thousands of dollars in resources. Good point. Though I'm just checking to see whether Wapping Sin told us taxpayers would pay the ultra, ultra hefty bill for fighting our regular chemical fires in warehouses and factories of the caring business class and the ultra, ultra hefty bill for cleaning up the mess and the cost of environmental destruction. Can't see it immediately, but I'll keep looking. It must be here somewhere. Because Lord Rupert wouldn't be inconsistent. Then, to compound the attacks on the community, stopping people going about their lawful business, two days later, the bloody evil unions took over the streets, complaining thanklessly about how their caring employers were treating them. Ingrates. And worse, calling for scuttle them and the team to be tossed out. How dare they? And in my role as a dedicated Week That Was reporter, I have to admit I I joined them, listener, posing as a marcher. And sadly, but predictably, have to admit I never saw one couth person, not one, among this evil rabble, unlike the couth sophisticated, respectable citizens like Gina et al., who marched in their tens for positive issues like getting rid of the carbon price, uh, sorry, carbon tax, or the crippling unfair tax the socialists wanted to impose on super-duper resource profits or other attacks on the caring business class, all of which led the news services and warranted P1 and several inside pages in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media, for instance, but obviously they've learned their lesson about giving oxygen to anti-social causes because more than 100,000 brainwashed workers marching for so-called change the rules received very limited coverage, indeed on the commercial news I watched, it came in about 8th, after critical international news like a road rage incident at Hallam and a footballer beating the rap, and other equally important events vital to our collective knowledge. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin buried it back on left-hand P10, stories emphasis repeating its coverage of the previous day that the building and construction jackboots con mission would prosecute construction workers who attended the rally without their caring employer's permission, reminding us that several workers were being prosecuted for, for daring attend the previous rally when their rightful place in the world was serving their caring employer. Although I can recall attending another illegal stop work at the MCG in 2007 when then Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Kim Beesneys, whose Beesneys kept buckling, promised he would tear up work choices. And the workers were told the answer to all their problems lay in going home and voting for the Socialist Party. And then when next day Kim became Little Kebby Rod for the workers, Little Kebby, while wiping the blood from the knife, also promised to tear up work choices, which included the very clauses under which these workers are being prosecuted. But in fairness, Little Kebby did tear up the back cover of work choices and changed the front cover to fair work, true 
Subluwazi no longer work choices, just looks like it. And don't forget the next big supremo, Julia Gallinghard, after she'd turned the knife on little Kebby, insisted, We must have a top cop on the beat! to beat the evil unions into knowing their place in the world. And at least this time there's no promises to tear up anything, just vote little Billy and paddle on on a wing and a prayer. But having said that, seriously, congratulations to the unions for organising such an impressive event. It was huge. Just couldn't compete with road rage at Hallam. Still, if sit-ins and marches are antisocial by preventing people going about their lawful business and costing the public purse tens of thousands, let's hope the whopping sit and other media can find alternatives in the next few weeks to prevent the Anzac Best We Forget march disrupting our lives and later the Grand Final, the Melbourne Cup, the Great Department Store's Christmas Parade, the sorts of out-of-control lawlessness we must eradicate. It now seems a very rich, caring business class person, anxious to obtain true blue Aussie citizenship for himself and his family, paid thousands and thousands of dollars to obtain a meeting with then Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, held in a private room at an upmarket Chinese restaurant. And yet, Constable Duffer assures us the citizenship issue was not discussed, not even mentioned posing the question, what did the very rich, caring business class person anxious to obtain Tubli Wazi citizenship, who paid thousands and thousands of dollars to a former caring business class MP to secure the meeting, want to discuss? I suppose, and indeed there's a strong chance, he may have discussed it, but Constable Duffer just didn't realise that's what they were talking about. But he says it wasn't discussed, so we must believe him. Although I reckon 99.9% of True Blue Aussies would be prepared to pay to ensure they didn't have to meet Constable Duffer. Scuttle then was close to tears as he launched an Her Most Gracious Majesty's Con mission into people with disabilities, saying how much he cares. Which leaves us to ponder, then how come he fought to prevent it happening for so long? Maybe the tears were because he'd been rolled on it. Meanwhile, the US OB is anxious to um, extradite the now-incarcerated Julian Assange, although his holding up in the Ecuadorian embassy for the past seven years was also a form of incarceration. Ah, yes, what is his crime? We are spokesperson Major Chuck Slaughter III. He exposed war crimes by our brave young cream of US OB youth, men and women in uniform. Uh, So what's his crime? It is a crime to expose our war crimes. Although, let me qualify that. The US OB does not commit war crimes, like shooting civilians for fun. You must understand that our brave young cream of US OB youth, men and women in uniform, are under great stress, but know how evil the people we send them to slaughter are. Uh, like, Like wedding parties? You must understand that wiping out wedding parties cuts off the creation of evil terrorists at its source. Uh, Thank you, Major Slaughter. Pleasure. And be very, very careful what you report. After saying he loved WikiLeaks, I love WikiLeaks, when it was leaking on his opponent during the election campaign, Donald Trample the Poor now says he knows nothing about WikiLeaks. And given we're in the middle of the US of Masters, we can say par for the course. 
part of the course in our northern and northwestern suburbs, yet another of the aforementioned chemical fires threatening the communities and wrecking waterways, flora, fauna, the environment. And sure, the caring business had broken the law a number of times, but the EPA, the Environment Pollution Authority, had to give it a fair chance to clean up its act. It can't just close a business because a little bit of environmental damage. But, but I raise this because the company deserves credit for its compassion for refugees. It seems most of the workforce, including the worker still fighting for his life, were Tamil refugees. And we can be sure a company that so cares for the environment, environment would never exploit a workforce. And finally, a week when the most earth-shattering news worldwide is road rage in Hallam. Oh, oh, and uh, Scuttle then caught in a lecture. I almost forgot. Sorry. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. And on the line, we've got Humphrey McQueen. How are you, Humphrey? I'm very well, thank you. And you? I'm good. Um, we're going to uh, be talking food and capitalism. We are a bit, because last Saturday morning, this time, I was out in Braidwood for the Judith Wright Two Fires Festival. And the two fires are art and activism. Hey. And that, of course, sums up Judith Wright's life. Although the other phrase that she used to sign her letters off with also sums her up. She'd sign off her letters with love and fury. <laughs> Good one. Uh, so, and it's worth reminding us at this time that, you know, the part of the reason why it's still possible to battle for the Great Barrier Reef is because of the battle that Judith was involved in in the late 60s and 1970. And her book about it called Coral, uh, Coral Battleground. Um, and also she says in there um, that she thought the battle was lost and she got a cable. I mean, this is 1970, so you got cables. Um, she was in London and the cable arrived saying that the Queensland Trades and Labor Council had imposed a total ban on oil exploration on the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, thank goodness. She said this was magnificent and unprecedented. is that amazing? Um, they were going to drill on the Barrier Reef. They were, how, they were going to drill for oil on the Great Barrier Reef. And it was stopped. You know, with God knows what would have happened, um, but the unions came out. They'd, they'd been doing things before then, but the unions came out and said, "No way, we're going to do this." And then those bloody the mayor, those bloody unions. I know. I, well, of course, if they did it today, Gillard's law, they'd, the unions would be fined a million dollars, and the workers about seven thousand dollars each. Mm. So, yeah, but. When the BLF and the BWIU banned sand mining on Fraser Island, yep, I remember that. one of them said um, that the Fraser Island was the anchor of the Great Barrier Reef. So those two things were linked in the minds of these active unionists. So anyway, we went out there for the festival and it was about food and capitalism. And, uh, of course, Judith's other great passion for pushing for the Aboriginal Treaty yeah. Um, so there's a lot of Aboriginal activity and about food and caring for the environment and things as well. So that's what it was about. And they asked me to go out and talk, and I said, I'd, oh, delighted. Um, as another, well, Judith wasn't a Queenslander, although she spent a lot of time up there. She was born in New England. Um, and so I said, what I'll talk about is, as you say, food and capitalism. And the two issues I raised 
One is social equality, which is, I think, the best working definition I have for what it means to say that you're a socialist. Uh, so I began with that. Okay. And uh, what, I've, uh, what I've often used this expression is that, as a socialist, what kind of criterion do we apply when somebody says, oh, we'll, we'll come along and we'll have this new policy, we'll have what they call, we're going to have a reform. Mm-hmm. Of course, so often these days their reforms turn out to be deforms. Um, so that the criteria that I've always used is, is this more or less likely to increase social equality across three generations? And if the answer to that is, well, yes, it, you know, there's a good chance that's what it will do, then we can support it. Um, and, we, you know, we can't be sure what the result's going to be. Um, you've got to keep a watch on it all the way through. Now, it's and, very interesting that you uh, tie in time. Well, you have to. You know, I mean, there's no, as many people, as many people who've been critical of socialism have said, if you divided up all the money in the world equally between everybody today, where would you be tomorrow? If, you know, it's, it's not just a one-off activity. You've got to look at what change you can bring across, and I, I reckon three generations, you know, there's, there's a fairly reasonable time to expect to be able to do some of these things, and particularly the example I gave of what the impact of changing equal access to the best kind of food would be. Mm. Um, this is something that isn't often raised. Because it's not always about money. Well, yeah, well, I mean, you can't get the money out of that equation, of course, mm-hmm. because the more money you've got, you know, the you know, the chances are you've got better access to the better kinds of food. Yep. And it's not, I mean, it's not just money, it's related to time and place and, you know, I mean, if, if you're darting from one job to another and trying to, you know, pick up the kids before and after school and all of those things, it's no wonder that people go for fast food. Yeah, music I mean, bars. I mean, I mean, you can't separate those things for people. You know, I mean, there's a lot of sort of, you know, you know there was what used to be called the undeserving poor, and the attitude that, you know, people had, oh, well, they don't deserve anything, they're the undeserving poor because they, they brought this on themselves. I fear some of that has spread over into what we might call the undeserving overweight, yeah. uh, that people are blamed. The undeserving obese. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, oh, well, it's their fault. Mm. And that fits into that whole bourgeois notion that yeah, we are bourgeois, rational yes. consumers, that we've got a complete free choice to say, well, we'll have this or we'll have that. Well, no, because of the pressures of the mass marketing world, which is the second theme that I brought up, which is the place that the need that capital has to expand has on the way in which food is presented to us. So these two things, as a Marxist critical analysis of the system and as a socialist looking forward to what we might do. And there, that other great socialist in Australia, Fiona Stanley, uh, from Western Australia, who was Australian of the Year in 2003, she made this point, I think, wonderfully in the uh, Australian of the Year address she gave. It was called The Real Brain Drain. And she said, the real brain drain is not when we get PhDs who go to the United States and don't come back. The real brain drain takes place before the age of five. And indeed, it takes place before conception. That the health of the parents 
goes into the sperm and the ova. We know the dangers that can happen in a negative sense from smoking or alcohol while the, um, you know, the, well, the, well the, the kind of prospective baby is in the womb um, and we know the problems that can happen when children, you know, are either exposed to, you know, lead in their environment, all of those things. What we don't think of so often, I think, is the positive things that could come if from one generation to the next and all the way through the pregnancy and in those early years, you know... People were suitably uh, fed. Yeah, were being fed the best kinds of way. Now, one Mm. of the things that, you know, that Fiona Stanley did was to get a campaign to succeed to get the folic acids back into bread. Can you talk talk about the... uh the the cut lunch that uh, oh well this is a really another thing it's a wonderful one in the late thirties they had an experiment at the Collingwood um, primary school now Collingwood as you could imagine you know in the late thirties in the depression the late yeah. over, was one of the most impoverished areas I mean you got kids you know coming to school without shoes and you know not yeah, getting frightful. proper fed and things. really hard but, stuff. You know, so what they did from um, that of Oslo, there was, uh, that's what it was called, there was an experiment there first, and people here tried it. And what happened was that they gave these children a special lunch, wholemeal bread, butter, cheese, um, and a glass of milk, and also a fresh orange. The results were extraordinary. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, not only in terms of their health, but in terms of how they were able to learn, to what their behaviour was like. Everything completely changed. And it was so successful, this was 1940, that all the mothers' committees, as they were called in those days, across Australia adopted it. They wanted the Oslo lunch. They wanted the Oslo lunch. And you'd have to say Mm. that, you know, given what I'm told turns up in lunchboxes in schools today... The Oslo lunch would be a very great improvement. Well, I've been noticing that a lot of schools actually have breakfast and lunch clubs. Well, they do, um, and I mean, you know, that is, you know, I mean, that's terribly important. And there are schools now um, with the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden program. Yes, that's About right. Five hundred of them, where the kids, you know, I mean, I've got a friend who teaches one, and his mother, the mother, say to him, "Well, they wouldn't eat that at home." <laughs> And Peter says to them, they didn't grow it at home. Mm. And also he pointed out that um, they didn't know about boiling water. That, that's an indication of oh. uh, a lack of connection to the the physical world, isn't it? Well, that, and it meant what happened. You know, when these kids, you know, they're, well, they're very at an age, you know, from about eight onwards. Yeah, yeah. And they come to these classes, you know, and they, they've, never seen, they've never seen boiling water. And they've got to be warned, you know, that things get hot and they touch them. He says, oh, that's they only very make important. this mistake once. Yeah, yeah well, know. of course, you but, only you make know, that mistake you know, once. It tells you about the industrialisation of the diet. Yeah. And, uh, and that, how it fits in. As Mark said when he was writing Capital, that even, you know, back then in the, 1920, in the, the 1820s, when heavy machinery came in uh, and allowed, uh, well, when you got, Either well, we'll just say it was a steam engine. Simplifies it. When you had a steam engine to drive the machinery, 
women and children could then be employed to operate it, which they hadn't been before. And this meant it was the beginning of that period where women were taken out of the home, where they'd been preparing the food, where they'd been making the clothes and things. All of those things now had to be purchased out in the marketplace. So that is the beginning of what we see today. Because what we see today in this regard is we don't like to think about this, but we all have domestic servants. They're just industrialised. Oh, yeah. Uh, One of the most important uh, inventions was indeed uh, the gas stove and the washing machine. Well, those, but also all the food we buy in, Mm. and most of us do in one way or another, that's all prepared by our domestic servants who are working in factories. That's right. And uh, so we think, oh, I don't have a domestic servant. I don't have anyone waiting on me. Oh, yes, we do. And it's not just when you go out to eat. It's oh, no. in our own homes. And, we've, um, you know, we've got to remember our links through the rest of the working class in these ways. And so, so basically, yeah. in, so, in so basically what you're saying is there's this grand disempowerment uh, within this system uh, between uh, the individual and uh, the food that they have um, and the choices that are available to them. Uh, I, I, it it um, strikes me that... Uh, uh, they don't just have cooking shows. Capitalism requires there to be competitive cooking well, shows. Well, not only that. <laughs> those cooking shows, and I use this as an example. I was, I was watching one of them one afternoon when I was in the gym. I wasn't paying total attention, but he was making a salmon mousse. And he said, look, this isn't like the salmon mousse your mum used to make with a tin of, you know, sort of kind of grey salmon and some condensed milk. Oh. I thought, well, that's a, you know, that, that has to be a good thing. So I was watching to see what he was doing. And every step of the way, I noticed, he said, oh, we just had a bit more salt. Uh. Well, not till the end of the program, and I just happened to catch this, we discover who the sponsor of the program is. <laughs> Sacks of salt. Uh, Sacks They're yeah. up there. And so that when we think, how are these shows, why are they there? They're not just there because they're cheap to fill up time with. I mean, that's you know that's certainly part of what. Or that they're uh, increasing people's ability to actually cook. Well, then certainly not about that. I mean, you know, it's it's like all those really glossy food books and recipe books (laughs) and celebrity chefs, which are known as food porn, of course, because you don't use them. You just sort of you know you kind of well, there's a kind of Perhaps you salivate over them as as close as you'd get, and that's what they're about. Um, <laughs> Only special people do those things. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, so that the marketing aspect, and this is the other thing I, try, I always try to point out to people, is that we, what we see is the ads. What we don't see is the marketing behind the ads. The advertising, the advertisements we see is only the pimple on the pumpkin. Yeah, I love that term. Yeah, but it's true. You know, I mean, when you think of a new product, whatever it is, it begins with the marketing people before it exists. It starts as a concept. They sit around and think, what what doesn't exist that we could try to make and sell? That's really as far back as it goes. And the whole of the marketing thing that goes on from there, they do product development, they do design, all of those things are intended to 
trap us into thinking this is something we absolutely have to have. <laughs> and then the ads finally come along at the end. Mm. And the ads take all kinds of forms, like, you know, as I've just said, they become part of the product placement in any kind of feature television or feature film. P- but, bottled water is probably the ultimate in that. Well, it's been extraordinary, hasn't it? Yeah. You know, um, from the days in which Coca-Cola was reluctant to even have a Diet Coke for fear that it would distract attention from its one product uh. to the days in which they realised they had to own everything. Mm. All the way from Coca-Colas and all the variants on that across to, to, uh, to cold coffee and, as you say, to various kinds of bottled water. Um, but that is the great, you know, it's, it's certainly, and, and they do it with everything. I mean, you walk down to supermarket aisle and you see all this gluten-free food. Well, <laughs> if if you have a gluten allergy, mm. it is good for oh, you to be impo- able yeah, to get access to things. And this is important. But most it's people been told as if being gluten-free was some kind of health food for everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and what this means is, of course, they put a premium on the price. So that the gluten-free things, you know, are about 20, 25% more expensive. Um, so uh, you know, we, we have to finish, but we should, we should uh, end up with the visual that you left in your notes, which was that there should be a, a um, police warning uh, tapes around those aisles well, in I the said, supermarket. Look, we have to come up. We're going to have activism. We've got to have a three-point program to deal with this. And one of them was uh, that... As a first step, only a first step, we set up crime scenes around the processed food aisles in every supermarket. (laughs) That would be a start. And then we have a people's commission into the normal practices of the food industry, not into malpractices. That's what went wrong with the banking commission. You only looked at the obviously bad things that they did. What we've got to look at is what their standard practices are. (laughs) You're exactly correct. So anyway, these are the things we did. We had a great time out there. Um, And um, it's always, you know, well, it's a kind of honour to be associated with someone like Judith Wright. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there are great poems. I mean, one of them that I ended by quoting, she says, you know, she, she claims she's at a public dinner, and the opening line is, no, I'm not eating. I'm watching my country's honour being devoured. <laughs> On that note, On thank that you very much. Note, yes. Okay, well, I'll see you soon because I'm going to be down for a couple of days next week. Oh, good. So we'll come by. Okay. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. And that is the end of Solidarity Breakfast this week. Don't forget, tomorrow is the big rally, Palm Sunday rally for refugees, 2 o'clock outside the library, if you're in Melbourne, at the um, State Library, 
not libraries in general, state library. Uh, coming up next is a- Asia Pacific Currents, and I'll let you go with Early Morning Come Down Blues. Early morning come down blues As wide the day is new Well I lay my head down once again When the Now has come, I'll rise again Because of my Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.